0: Welcome to Antioch. We are a multi-generational, justice-minded church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation
1: of all things. May the Word of God turn your heart toward Christ and the world He loves. As we move from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Thanks be to God.
0: Thanks, Gary. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. I don't know what that is. Uh, good to be back. I was at uh, Camp Tadmore last weekend speaking to 300 high schoolers from all over the state of Oregon uh, for four days about the kingdom of God and uh, it was a great time. It was a little bit of a throwback for me to my early days of ministry. Um, If you don't know, I became a youth pastor when I was 18, which means I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. (laughs) I uh, did youth ministry in a little country church for six years, and then when I was 24, I took the job of a college and young adult pastor at a nearby redneck megachurch, and uh, did that for a couple of years. And then when I was 26, they sent us out. They gave us uh, 50 people and $50,000 to go plant a new church. And so we went to Corvallis and started a new church. And Corvallis, if you don't know, about half the population of the town is Oregon State students, and so... Um, <clears throat> All that to say, after six years of high school ministry, two years of young adult ministry, and eight years of being a lead pastor in a college town, the point is, I've done a lot of weddings, okay? (laughs) So I lost track a long time ago, but it's well over 100, probably closer to 150. And um, weddings are great, right? Because it's always a happy occasion, Um, and, It's always fun to be part of one of the best days of someone's life. And um, as you know, weddings aren't cheap, and they take a lot of time to pull off even the simplest weddings. There's so many details to think about. And um, even with all the planning and preparation that goes into a wedding, there's always something that goes wrong, right? And I've seen it all. Sometimes it's just a minor thing, like a groomsman standing in the wrong place or something like that. Sometimes it's a major thing, like the time a fight broke out in the parking lot before the ceremony, and some dude pulled an ax out of his truck. Um, that was memorable. Something always goes wrong, but it's usually not enough to totally ruin the day. In fact, of the hundred plus weddings I've done, I can only remember one where things went really bad. Um, And it did happen to be my fault. So. (laughs) We were in central Washington, uh, way out in the middle of nowhere. It was an outdoor wedding at a beautiful remote state park. And because there weren't many buildings around, the couple asked me ahead of time, Hey, can we stash our getaway luggage in your car so when we are ready to leave, we can grab it, get in our car, and drive away? And I said, Sure. And so the ceremony was beautiful. The reception was great. Everyone was having a good time, and now it was time for everybody to tunnel up and uh, the couple to make their exit and head off uh, for their honeymoon. So I go to grab their luggage for my car, at which point I realize I have locked my keys inside my car. (laughs) So the party's on pause for a moment, and of course, every man there is trying to do his trick to figure out how to unlock the car, and nothing works. I'm calling roadside assistance to try to get a tow truck or locksmith, but we are way out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody can get there for a couple hours. And so um, it's going to be a while. And by this point, it's starting to get late. Everybody's got a long drive back to the airport or hotels or whatever, so people start taking off. The caterer starts cleaning up, the DJ starts tearing down. Everybody leaves, except for the bride, the groom, and me. (laughs) And after a couple hours, the tow truck finally shows up, and he has his tool, he unlocks the car, we get their stuff off, they load up their car, and they drive off on their honeymoon while I stand there waving by myself. Um, not my greatest moment. <clears throat> the setting for our text today is another wedding where things aren't going great. And uh, if you can believe it, the situation that this bride and groom in are in is even worse than the pastor locking your luggage in his car. So let's uh, walk through this story in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Okay, this is a problem. In the ancient Near East, weddings were an even bigger deal than they are for us. Um, In our day, if you're going to go to a wedding, you probably block out maybe a half day, um, and that's all it takes. In that day, if you're going to go go to a wedding, you'd block out at least a week, maybe two. Okay, so the expectation was that obviously travel took a long time. And if friends and family were coming from out of town for your wedding, they were going to stay a while. And while they were there, all the different parts of the festivities and celebrations required the host, which in this case was the groom, to provide... Uh, for all the needs of the guests. Make sure everybody has somewhere to stay, make sure there's enough food, make sure there's enough wine. And if you failed to plan accordingly and provide hospitality for your guests, this culturally was much more than just a minor inconvenience. This would have been a social disaster. Um, the result would have been that the family would live with shame and the groom would have to live with that disgrace for a very, very long time. Okay? And so when Jesus' mother tells him that there's no more wine, this wasn't just a minor hiccup. This was literally a crisis. This was a very big deal. This couple's reputation and future were in serious jeopardy because the wine has run out. And just to make sure nothing gets lost in translation here, since we live in Bend, Oregon, if you don't know, wine is sort of like beer, but it's made out of grapes. Okay, so same idea. Imagine going to the brew fest, and a half hour in, they run out of beer. That would be the situation. So just, you know, different time, different place. The wine has run out. Now, by the way, Isn't that what always happens? That the wine runs out? In the Bible, wine isn't just wine. Wine is joy and gladness. For example, Ecclesiastes 9, Go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. Wine is that thing in your life that works until it doesn't. Eventually, the thrill wears off, and the joy runs out. And your life starts feeling more like an existence. I wonder where you've run out, or where you're running on low, or where you don't have enough, or you aren't enough. Because wine is great in the moment, but it never lasts. The wine always runs out. So there's no more wine at this wedding. And Mary, who for some reason is never named in John's gospel. She's just referred to as the mother of Jesus. She finds out that the wine is gone, and she goes and tells Jesus the situation. Here's how Jesus responds in verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Okay, there are a lot of theories amongst Bible scholars about what's happening in this brief interaction between Jesus and his mom. His tone feels a little bit blunt, (laughs) if not rude. She seems to think that for some reason her son can do something about this wine situation, but he doesn't seem all that excited about getting involved. She, we can assume, wants to save this couple from a lifetime of shame. But Jesus says that the timing of this uh, predicament doesn't quite fit for him. And so this whole thing isn't exactly ideal. To be honest, I don't know what to make of this interaction. Um, It is super mysterious. But here's what happens in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, so Jesus goes, Mom, why are you involving me in this situation? My time hasn't come yet. I don't know what that means. Mary doesn't argue. She doesn't say anything. Instead, she just turns to the wedding staff and says, do whatever he tells you to do. The best explanation that I've heard for what's going on here is that in between verse 4 and 5, there's a look. (laughs) and I think you know the mom look when you see it. Now, I don't know for sure, but apparently, after the look, Mary seems pretty confident that Jesus is going to do something about the situation. So she tells the servants, do whatever he tells them. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Okay, so if you think about a water jar that holds 20 to 30 gallons, that's what we would call a barrel, right? That is a large container that holds a lot of water. And John makes sure to tell us that these jars were used for Hebrew purification rites. They were used for the ceremonial hand washing that Jewish people were required to do at many different points throughout the day. Before they ate, after they ate, when they touched certain things, when they whatever, there were all kinds of different situations that required ceremonial cleansing. And because they were throwing such a huge party and there were extra guests there, they likely had to bring in extra jars to hold all the water for all their guests. Now, what's interesting, is that the jars are sitting there empty. And Jesus has the servants go and fill them up with water, which would have taken a long time. You don't just turn on the hose, but you gotta make runs to the well or to the spring or, or wherever. This is a hard job, it would have taken quite a while. But Jesus says first, I want you to fill the jars with water because whatever he's about to do, he isn't just gonna create something out of nothing he asked them to go fill these jars with water so that, they can, so that he can have something to work with. Because sometimes even religion leaves us feeling empty, doesn't it? Like we've tried so hard to follow all the rules, to be a good person, to do all the right stuff. And at some point, It just gets exhausting. Filling up the jars over and over and over again. And it works for a while. We feel good about ourselves. We enjoy being impressive. But after a while, we start feeling pretty empty. And it all starts knocking pretty hollow. For a while, we enjoyed the fact that we're not like those people whose life is a mess. But then at a certain point, we realize if we're honest, deep down, we're no different. Because even religion leaves us empty. So Jesus tells the servants, go fill up these six water jugs. And that's what they do. Then in verse 8, then he told them, Notice how these servants are doing exactly what Mary had told them to do, which is whatever Jesus tells you. They have no idea what he's up to. And some of the stuff he asked them to do is a little odd. So first he has them go fill up all the ceremonial jugs, and now he asks them to take a glass of the hand-washing water and give it to the host of the banquet, the sommelier, if you will. <laughs> And see what he thinks, right? They've got to feel pretty strange about this. But for whatever reason, they're doing whatever he tells them to. And as a result, they're about to witness a miracle. It's interesting to think about who all at this banquet gets to see what Jesus does here. Because obviously the servants were in on it. And we can assume that his mom and the few disciples he has there were watching this whole thing go down. But other than that, it doesn't seem like anyone else has any idea what's going on. In fact, it doesn't even seem like anyone else has realized that they were out of wine in the first place. And the master of the banquet sure doesn't know. So they bring him a cup of this water that's been turned into wine, He takes a sip of it, and he goes and finds the groom, who I assume at this point is out on the dance floor shaking it off with the rest of the crowd. The banquet master goes and pulls him aside and goes, Young man, I have underestimated you. (laughs) I thought you had no idea what you were doing. I didn't think you knew anything about wine, but you have saved the best for last. This is the best thing I have ever tasted in my life. And notice what the groom says in verse 10. Oh, there is nothing. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't even know what the guy is talking about. (laughs) He's just like, yeah, that's how I roll. (laughs) And then YMCA comes on and he hits the floor again. So (laughs) they're clueless. But Jesus turns this water into wine. He spares this young couple from a lifetime of shame. He keeps the party going and he does it not just by producing high quality of wine, but high quantity as well. So how many water jugs were there? There were six. How many gallons does each of them hold? 20 to 30 gallons. They were told to fill them to the brim. So we're talking about how many gallons? 120 to 180, very good, which would be roughly 600 to 900 bottles of wine for us. Okay? Again, for you Bendites, this is 12 to 15 kegs of <laughs> Boneyard RPM or whatever your hazy of choice is. This is a lot, right? This isn't just a couple extra bottles. This is a couple extra Costco pallets of wine. Jesus takes regular wine, and transforms it into something very special, more and better than anyone could have expected. Because that's what Jesus does, isn't it? This is a story about transformation. And Jesus is all about transformation. I know a lot of us have a hard time with change. But the truth is, if you have a hard time with change, you're going to have a hard time with Jesus. He spends very little energy trying to keep things the way they are. His mission is to make all things new. Just a few chapters later in John 10, Jesus puts it this way, that I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Think about this in the context of this miracle that he performed in Cana. Or in the message version, he says, I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Where in your life do you need transformation today? Where do you long to see things not just get back to the way they used to be or not just get back to normal, but be transformed into something that they never could have been otherwise? More and better than you ever dreamed of. This story is about transformation because that's what Jesus is all about. And Jesus, when it comes time to create change, he almost never does it in the way we want him to. And sometimes we don't even realize what he's up to at all. Here's how M.T. Wright puts it Transformation is the new dimension of reality that comes into being when Jesus is present and people do whatever he tells them to. Are you willing to do whatever Jesus tells you to? I don't know about you, I would rather decide after I know what he's gonna ask. (laughs) Then I can weigh the pros and cons, do a cost-benefit analysis, make a wise, informed decision. That's not how transformation works. It happens when we decide that we're going to do whatever Jesus tells us to, even when we don't have all the information we'd like. So, Jesus transforms water into wine. And that's the end of the narrative part of this story in verse 10. We're not told anything else that happens, we're not told that word about this event spread throughout the party and throughout the town. Sometimes Jesus does miracles and everybody sees and everybody finds out and then there's some sort of discussion or follow-up, but we don't get that here. In fact, John only gives us one sentence to clue us in to the meaning of this miracle. It's in verse 11. He says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So why does Jesus do this miracle in the first place? I think we assume that the reason Jesus does most of his miracles is to prove his identity. The claims that he's made about himself, that others have made about him, to let people know that he's not just some guy, but that he's God in the flesh, and so he puts on these shows. But that's really not what you see when you look at the gospel accounts. Jesus isn't just trying to draw a crowd. He's not trying to go viral. He's not trying to woo people and, and draw them to follow himself. That's not why he does the miracles that he does. So what's he doing? Well, John tells us that turning water into wine was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. We call these miracles, but the biblical authors, especially John, calls these moments signs. In the first half of John's gospel, we have seven signs that Jesus performs. And not all of them are what we would call miraculous. But they are all moments where heaven touches earth. And when the transforming power of God's love bursts into the present world. And so what's the point of a sign? Think about when you're driving on the road and you see a sign telling you what's ahead or how far to the next exit or whatever it is. The point of a sign isn't to point to itself but to point to something else. And if a sign only draws attentions to itself, it has not fulfilled its purpose. So if this miracle is a sign, then the question is, what is this sign pointing to there's so much here but in addition to being a symbol of joy and gladness throughout the scriptures wine is also a picture of the great banquet that awaits on the day when God makes all things new the Bible teaches that one day God is going to restore the world and everything in it. And on that day, the recurring picture that we're given is that it's going to be like a great feast. For example, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, oh yeah, and the finest of wines. (laughs) This is what God is going to do one day. All of heaven and earth will be made new and will be joined together for an amazing feast with the best food and the finest wine. That is why Jesus came in the first place. This is his ultimate mission on earth. Through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He's preparing the way to make all things new. So if that is Jesus' ultimate mission, then it makes sense then that the first sign he gives us is at a wedding feast where he brings more and better wine than anyone could ever dream of. This event is a sign that points us to the way things one day will be when God makes all things new. There was a time, I've told you this before, when I was a pretty capable connoisseur of Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. If you don't know, just about three hours west, you find some of the best Pinot Noir in the world, second only to Burgundy, France. And there was a time when I could tell you, with pretty good accuracy, what year that Pinot was made, just by tasting it. You could give me a glass of Willamette Pinot and I could tell you, yeah, this tastes like a 2009, or that's definitely a 2012, okay? So I used to be pretty good at this. Let me teach you a couple of words that will help you sound really smart next time you go wine tasting, okay? The first is a word you've heard, it's vintage. Now, vintage doesn't just mean old or retro. Vintage comes from the word vine. So a wine's vintage is essentially the year that it was made. Okay? So next time you're wine tasting, you can ask, what year is this from? And sound like some commoner. Or you can say, hmm, (laughs) what vintage is this? Okay? That's the first word. Second word, you may not know, is terroir. Terroir. T-E-R-R-O-I-R. And it's a French word that means earth or land. And a wine's terroir is its sense of place. It's the nuance and the subtlety that you can taste and smell in a particular wine that it receives from the very earth that it was grown in. And the minerality and the type of rocks and the weather and the climate and the pruning techniques and the farming methods, everything that makes that wine unique to that specific, even square foot where it was planted. So again, next time you're tasting, you could say something lame like, where's this wine from? (laughs) Or you could be like, hmm, I can really taste the terroir of Walla Walla. (laughs) You will have fewer and fewer friends, but you'll sound smarter. So, here's the point. Imagine at this wedding in John 2, that the servants bring this cup of water turned to wine and give it to the banquet master. And as he swirls it around, sniffs the bouquet. As he takes his first sip and realizes this is the best wine he has ever had in his life. Imagine if he knew what we know. And instead of calling the doofus groom off of the dance floor, he called Jesus over and says, You brought this? You got to tell me about this wine. And he asks Jesus, what vintage is this? And he's expecting Jesus to say, oh, that's an 09 or an 11. Not a 2009 or 2011, literally 09 or 11. (laughs) But instead of a year in the past, Jesus goes, that wine is actually from the future. And even I, Jesus says, don't know exactly when. Only my father in heaven knows the exact date and time. And the uh, Somali is like, huh, all right. <laughs> and what's this interesting terroir I'm picking up? I've never tasted anything like this. And he's expecting Jesus to say, yeah, that's from the Dead Sea region. Or that's from up in the Golan Heights AVA. But instead, Jesus says, what you're tasting are the notes of heaven. Because this is the wine that will be served in the new creation. So, if the banquet master knew then what we know now, he never would have bothered talking to the doofus groom. He would have recognized that Jesus is the true bridegroom. Because the picture that we get of the new heavens and the new earth isn't just a feast, but a wedding banquet where we are the bride and Jesus is the groom. Let's take this last look at this great picture that the Bible gives us of what that day will be like in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. he who was seated on the throne said I am making everything new this is where human history is headed it doesn't always feel that way but one day Christ will come again and at this great wedding feast heaven and earth will be joined together humanity will and her Savior will be one. That day is coming. I'll just throw one more thing out. Many of you know that for me, um, all this talk about wine has an extra layer of meaning. Because it's been about four and a half years since the wine ran out for me. Meaning I had my last drink on July 4th, 2019 had to go out with a bang, right and it wasn't a nice pinot noir it was a white trash margarita <laughs> and since then for the last four and a half years by the grace of god and the support of the community i've lived with a sober commitment and a hopeful longing that my next drink is going to be with jesus in the new heavens and the new earth and we're going to crack a bottle of that sweet cane of wine, and we're going to talk about our favorite bands (laughs) and enjoy the best feast. And I so hope that you'll join me in living with this hopeful expectation that we've been given a taste of what's to come in Jesus himself, in his life, death. And resurrection, a foretaste of new creation. And so, Antioch, may the Spirit of God reveal to you the places in your life where the wine is run out and you're nearing empty. And may you be willing to do whatever Jesus tells you to, so that God can fill you to overflowing. Let's come, receive.